Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to Eastern Border. This is going to be a bit um, different episode than one of my usual ones, because in my Stalin series, I've reached a point where the episodes now are five hours long. Sorry about that. And I have a lot of things to explain and talk about, and uh, then I uh, run into troubles about explaining some concepts, and then I try to talk about that on social media. And then I start to think about what government actually is, and what the country is. And even though this show is called Eastern Border, and we'll touch on that in a minute, there are some things that need to be explained before we move onwards with the regular episodes of the show, because, well, I've been posting on social media, doing some provocative stuff, as usual, and uh, please, please, just don't take anything that I post on Twitter or Facebook too seriously. I mostly want to start a provocative discussion there, and instead of, you know, actually doing anything. It's a bit of a friendly trolling, so to speak. But the important part is that I've understood that some of my listeners, uh, quite a large percentage thereof, probably don't even understand why all this minute detail of what a government is actually matters. To explain how Soviet Union operated and why was it so focused on all the paperwork, on all the nuances. For example, why did the KGB people beat up the witnesses to their trials and why did they torture the accused to get a signed confession from them. It was basically to provide some sort of legitimacy to what they were doing, because legitimacy and matter of fact really mattered to them. And it still matters today. We don't want to live in places where our government is considered illegitimate, and that's how revolutions start, right? And it was the same for the Soviet Union. They needed international trade. They needed uh, some sort of veneer of legitimacy to kind of appear to be a normal government. They wanted to spread the world revolution, and you can't spread the world revolution if you're not, at least on paper, appearing to be anything legit. So we've run into a philosophical wall here. And that's what I'm gonna be trying to explain to you here, because what a country really is, and this comes from my background as a political philosopher, which is where I have my master's off and where I'm doing my PhD now. So... Even though this episode might be a bit weird, this will be very useful for your understanding of future episodes, and I hope it'll be of some use and entertaining as well. Because in this episode, we shall be looking at four constitutions, and I'm going to try to explain to you what a constitution even is, for those of you who don't know. And to keep in touch with the eastern border, we shall be comparing the Soviet constitution, the latest one they got, from uh, 1977, uh, from the 9th Convocation of uh, 7th of October 1977, which was undertaken under Brezhnev up until the last rewriting of it. We shall be comparing the last Soviet constitution and the Constitution of the United States of America, and 
our own constitution of Republic of Latvia. I'm going to use the official translations for the Latvian constitution and for the Soviet constitution. And I'll be touching a bit on the current constitution of France as well. Latvia, because I live here, and Soviet Union, because that's what our show is about. And those kind of fall in line, because Latvian constitution was written in 1922, but it only got its preamble in 2014. It's a bizarre story a bit. The thing is, those are Eastern constitutions, even though the USSR constitution is written as a whole in its own. They try to model it as a completely new thing. Meanwhile, our Latvian constitution is written on the basis of the Weimar Republic and in large parts of the French constitution as well. Well, earlier versions thereof, but um, French definitely had a lot of influence on our one. And then United States constitution, because that's what, well, most of my listeners know about. So these four constitutions are going to be there up for comparing uh, so that you would understand what the values of the countries are, why people are the way they are, and what were the general orientations of the government. Because we have to take a step back here and look at, look at the philosophical issue of what was the country? What was the ideal country that the Soviet Union wanted to be on paper? What was their version of legitimacy? Okay? Because... The constitution of a government, the adherence to said constitution is sometimes not what the country lives up to, but we have to look at the way how the USSR wanted to portray itself, at least in the public, right? For normal countries, the constitution is your number one law, your number one thing that you look up to, that's your, your basic laws. If you breach the constitution, that's considered a massive breach, and that's the number one thing where Supreme Courts usually interfere into. So to understand what constitution is, and not just in a, in a specific way, not just in a way that, you know, constitution is the basis of the standard agreement upon which certain peoples come together to create their own country. Now, uh, different ways, constitution itself is the closest thing to a written agreement on what the given country even is. You have to have one because from the constitution of every country, all other laws stem from. And that's what the country and the state officials model their actions from and what they want to appear to other countries. Constitution is not only the most basic standards of political freedoms granted to each citizen, but also, as these constitutions could be widely read, it is also considered a um, kind of a public statement of what your country should be. That is your ideal of a country because, well, come to think of it, if you would consider publicly that, hey, we would rather live under a different country, well, why wouldn't you make the best constitution possible for your own nation? I mean, constitution not only resembles what each country's values are, what each country's specifics are, it also kind of shows what is the best possible country from a legal and historical standpoint of the people who agree to this constitution or whose elected representatives kind of agree to this constitution want to live in. Because, you know, if you are writing a constitution, why not write the best constitution ever possible? Again, a long story, but this is important because... I've been asked this a lot, like, what is the real difference between the West and the East and the mentalities? And I'm looking at these constitutions, and I'm looking at... Constitution is the definition of a certain people in an area of what they think the best possible country for them would be. And again, constitution only has power if everyone agrees to it, because what people think... Where power lies, well, there it exists. Constitution, you know, you might now think that the police department and everything has the power. You might think that various uh, other portions of everything of the state apparatus in the country. But no, it's the people. It's been shown time and time and again. And I'll have a specific interesting example to start this show off with. But the real power lies where people think it lies. Therefore, the constitution of a certain country is how people of that country think the best country ever should be constituted. And again, you might think that it's the power of the state and power of everything, but in general, no. It has been proven wrong, usually, because any state is what you think it is. 
And this is important because if you remember my Gulag Inside things, right? My Gulag Inside series where I spoke about how uh, this internal prison was created, where I spoke about how people were basically forced to mistrust each other and what our cultural legacy is. It all came from inside. And the KGB apparatus was not so much about the direct oppression, even though that happened, and a lot. It was more about creating the sense of being oppressed. It was more about the sense of how you should behave, what you should do, and how it should come about. If you think that I'm wrong here and that there is some sort of magical state apparatus that declares everything instead of what you think of it, well then, uh, for the first part of the show, I want you to meet Emperor Norton before we go to the Constitutions. It'll all make sense then. But uh, I want you to meet Emperor Norton the first, and only Emperor of the United States of America. You see, Emperor Norton symbolizes things to me, and I'll be reading uh, a bit from the article written by a San Francisco tour guide, because they give you uh, nice information about this man who had power because, well, people believed he had power. See, United States was once ruled by a benevolent emperor. He was born in Britain, Joshua Norton, in 1818. Well, he grew up and they moved to South Africa. His parents died when he was in his 20s, leaving him an estate worth about $40,000. And at the age of 27 or 28, I don't know exactly, uh, he moved to the United States with about $40,000. In 1949, he came to San Francisco with as many as dreams as many people who moved to America, well, had at the time. He wanted to make it super rich. But he decided to buy mining bells. He bought mining shares and whatever, and then he invested real estate, he bought, like, plots of land all over the city, and basically his fortune grew to about five million in today's dollars. At the same time, this Norton fellow here, he was looking for something to really increase his fortune, and the value of rice had dramatically increased because of a shortage from China. And apparently, at some point, a ship full of rice went to San Francisco Bay, and the captain approached Norton with a proposal. Norton could get a steep discount on the rice, but he had to agree to buy the ship's entire cargo of rice. Norton saw a way to triple his money, so he bought the whole ship about 25,000 pounds of the rice thing, which would be about 12,000 kilos? I don't know. Unfortunately, within two weeks, another four ships full of rice would steam into the harbor, which basically dropped the price of rice in San Francisco at the time in 1849 from 12 cents per pound to about 4 cents per pound, which was like less than he had expected, and he lost insane amounts of money that way because, well, there had been a massive uh, kind of starvation in China, so they prohibited rice exports. So, well, the price of rice in the United States went up, so there was Peruvian rice that was brought in. But, well, he was told that it was the last ship of Peruvian rice that would come in. It wasn't. Well, so sad. At the same time, the gold rush was also losing steam. And very few people were finding gold, so... Flow of people also slowed to a trickle. Real estate market crashed, along with everything that Mr. Norton was owning. He went bankrupt. And, well, you think he would be ruined. But Norton disappeared from public queue for a while. If you've read 12 Chairs, which I highly recommend by Ilfan Petrov, 12 Chairs and the Golden Calf, then, uh, you know, he pulled an Ostap Bender here. Two years later, he arrived at the offices of the San Francisco Bulletin. He was wearing a full military uniform complete with buttons, epaulets, and a sword, along with a strange cat with a peacock feather in it. He asked for that to be published. And in this ad, Joshua Norton had declared himself Norton I, Emperor of the United States of America. During his time, there were a dozen daily newspapers in the region that were desperate for good stories, and this seemed to be a great one. The newspaper immediately published Emperor Norton's declaration. By 1861, the emperor was, like, doing it completely. It was just fully successful. The local playhouse put on a production entitled Norton I. From that moment on, every time a theater opened a new show, they would reserve a seat in the front row for the emperor. Whenever he arrived, the theater manager would escort him to his seat as the orchestra played a fanfare and the audience dropped and cheered him. During this time, Norton, by the way, was still completely broke. He lived in a small boarding house, uh, paying 50 cents per night. 
and his only income came from the charity of others. He was an interesting person because, for example, uh, he became a massive tourist attraction. He could eat for free at local restaurants, and people would just, you know, allow him to do so because then they could just post on their kind of advertisement that Emperor Norton I ate here, or once his uniform wore out, the city of San Francisco gave him a new one, or people donated him some fancy-looking clothes because then, you know, local shops could say, by appointment of Emperor Norton I. And when, like, the railways opened up and, and, like, Transcontinental Railway became open, he went on one of those trains and apparently the train, the ticket checker didn't recognize him, so he asked him to pay, and he printed his own money at this point. Because obviously, if you're the Emperor, why wouldn't you print your own money? He basically made a triad about this, and it ended up with uh, the owner, the guy after whom the Stanford University is named off, personally apologized to him and, and gave him a free ride for life. And then, at some point, uh, Mr. Norton basically apparently adopted two of, like, super famous stray dogs, because apparently they had stray dogs there. And it was just crazy. And he even spoke with the lost king of Hawaii, before their integration, and, and the king of Hawaii even refused to talk to the United States government, legit government, and he just wanted to talk with Emperor Norton, which he presumed was the only real authority there. It was just, just crazy. Weird. In 1871, a local printing firm even ran off a special currency emblazoned with a picture of Norton I in his imperial seal. The emperor passed the notes as his official government bonds until the day he died, and many recipients displayed them as treasured mementos. And... Even today, Norton the First and Pirilayo use, like, they are being sold off for insane amounts of money. And local businesses would accept these, these printed things. And he wouldn't be doing anything bad. No, he would just run around and inspect, like, how the local infrastructure worked. He wrote to President Grant, uh, allowing him to run the day-to-day -day business of the United States of America. And President Grant even kind of responded and accepted this position. In 1867, a police officer arrested Emperor Norton on the charge of vagrancy, and word got around to local press and the newspapers printed scathing reports of, quote, how dare they arrest our emperor? The next day, the chief of police released the emperor with an official apology. From that day onward, whenever the emperor would pass police officers in the streets, officers would salute him. And yeah, Emperor Norton ate here was on signs of, of many restaurants. And... He did a lot of interesting things, too. You might think he was just an eccentric and the whole town got invested in him, but they believed in him. And isn't that what constitutions are all about? Isn't the constitution just a written piece of paper laying down somewhere that we believe in? Why is our constitution more important than whatever this Emperor Norton guy is? Because if people wanted him to be the Emperor of the United States, and he was in San Francisco for his, well, life, at least 21 years, he technically was, even if he wasn't sane. Especially if you know that during this time, there was a large amount of discrimination against Chinese immigrants. And thousands of them had come to the United States, and many people throughout the nation didn't like the immigrants because of economical collapses, and it was the usual immigrants are stealing our jobs stuff, and, and even though they're just trying to get a better life, a lot of people didn't like them. And apparently Emperor Norton walked in one of the kind of anti-Chinese immigrant riots and he walked in front of the crowd and, like, according to, to the study here, he knelt on the ground and began reciting the Lord's Prayer and he said, we are all God's children. And he stopped a riot and the mob dispersed without causing any violence. And again, the Emperor rode all the city's streetcars and trolleys for free and whenever anybody demanded payment, the Emperor would simply hand over one of his imperial treasury notes, finally printed, which... Well, people accept it, which is crazy. And yeah, I'll, I'll tell you again. Leland Stanford, the owner of the Central Pacific Railroad, after whom the Stanford University is named, presented the emperor with a free pass on all Central Pacific trains for life and personally apologized to him. And he died in 1880. In the evening, when he was walking around inspecting uh, kind of the infrastructure and, and looking at the cops if they were doing a good job, well, he died. And a police officer just ran to him and checked if he was okay and called, uh, at that point, a carriage to get him to a hospital. And he died while the carriage was still in the way. The next day, the very same day that, at that point, the new governor of California was sworn in, the local newspaper dedicated four lines to the new governor, four lines from his international speech, and 34 inches to an obituary of Emperor Norton under the headline, Le Roi est mort which is the king is that. 
The main newspaper in Cincinnati, a place that the emperor had never visited, devoted half a page to him. They called him an emperor without enemies, a king without a kingdom, supported in life by the willing tribute of a free people. And somewhere between 10,000 to 30,000, which is like lowest and highest estimates, attended the funeral of the emperor. And he had nothing of value of him. He was like really living in this boarding room with no money and nothing. But he had like $5 worth of things besides his own stuff. But the local businessman club just pinched in and they just got him a nice rosewood casket. And he was buried and yeah. And Mark Twain used him as, as the model for the king and adventures of Huckleberry Finn too after that. He was really a treasured part of the city as much as I can tell you about him. He also had like the most craziest edicts. For example, he declared that the political parties should get uh, together well enough to actually work constructively. Uh, you know, whenever that would happen. He wanted to construct a uh, bridge between San Francisco and Oakland which actually came to fruition in 1936, also declared in 1972 that anyone who referred to his adopted city by, quote, the abominable word of Frisco would be subject to a $25 fine. And then, well, they moved the cemetery in 1934, and still many people just went through this. He was like the leader of city parades. He did a lot of things, and, and his gravestone now says Emperor First of the United States of America and Protector of Mexico, which is a title he just picked up after the French invasion of Mexico. But if you think about it, he died an emperor, and I wouldn't even dispute his position. At least, well, when it came to San Francisco. It's kind of kind of crazy to think about it, but this is what a constitution is. The people accepted him as an emperor, and so, well, he was. He didn't really enforce anyone to accept him, and yet they did. He didn't do anything. He was a living breathing constitution. If enough people buy into your thing, buy into the deal that you're offering them, then if the people themselves are allowed to write the deal, then anything can be a constitution. Because Emperor Norton, right there, he technically is a constitution, even though he basically decided that the United States should be an absolute monarchy at the time. But now let's get to the actual constitutions, but think about this. We had 21 years where people of San Francisco took a bankrupt, insane bum of the street, made him a local massive celebrity, gave him more authority than the governor of California, where super rich people personally apologized to him, where people went to protest en masse when he was arrested and forcibly placed into an insane asylum. Isn't that political power? Didn't the people vote for him with his legs? Power lies where we think it lies. If you think the Constitution is some abstract piece of paper written by someone you don't know in a long time's past, well, then amend it. Make it personal. But never forget that the power lies where people think it lie. And for us, for most people on this planet, that power lies in our constitutions. Which is why I want to do this comparison of our constitutions here. So let's get on to it. Hey guys, Annette here. Glad to have you with us for a new episode of The Eastern Border. As always, a big thank you to our Patreons. If you're not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to patreon.com slash theeasternborder to find out how you too can support our show. To keep up to date with all things Eastern Border, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And don't hesitate to send us a message with your comments and questions. That's it for now. Thank you for listening and see you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So, as we've discovered, the constitution is where all the political power of the said country comes from and uh well, most of them have preambles, our Latvian one has one as well. That was, however, only written in 19th of June 2014, even though everything was else was written there uh, without any amendments, modern amendments, like the basic version happened in uh, 1922. That's because we had a referendum here in Latvia about uh, the fact that our uh, pro-Putin parties wanted to make Russian the uh, actual second official language of Latvia. Now, you might not care about this in the United States, but that was a big deal here. So, we wanted to basically create our own preamble as well. And that happened here. Preamble of the Constitution usually declares what a country, well, wants itself to be. And I'll start with the United States one, because we're going to look at four ones here. I'm going to, you know, narrow my view. I'm not going to look at all the constitutions everywhere, like not all the four ones at the same time. But I'm going to have to read to you all the four preambles. Well, the most famous one here, obviously, is arguably, well, from the French at least, uh, is the United States one. In general, uh, the preamble states, quote, <clears throat> We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. What this preamble tells you is that already you have a certain amount of people who decide to live in this abstract United States. Let's just presume that United States has a spherical cow in a vacuum for general purposes. But if I would not know anything else about United States of America, and you have to, you know, start from here because this is the meat of the burger that is a country. That's the Constitution, right? From this one, I understand that there are certain amounts of people that live in some place called the United States and that they want to form a union among themselves, which shows me that, that you know, people of the United States want to kind of uh, slam together closer, and they want to you know, establish justice, tranquility, common defense, general welfare, and uh, do all these like, nice common things. Then, then comes some sort of mysterious blessings of liberty. Okay, whatever is a blessing of liberty, with the B being capitalized, whatever that is, but... Uh, you go, guys, I'm pretty sure that's, that's finally defined onwards. And they want to do that not for them, but for their kids as well, and they, thus they want to establish this thing. Basically, United States of America Constitution Preamble, where they define what they're out, you know, what's the job at hand and what they want to do, is that, hey, we're a bunch of dudes living in this here place, and then we want to make this stuff work out for us, and, you know, we're kids too, so that we could, like, live in a nice little cool thingy. I will now contrast that with the Constitution of the Soviet Union's preamble, which is much longer, much longer, but again, it's also clear in the meaning. This one's a much longer one. This is, um, everything's written out more clearly. The stuff that's written in the preamble of the U.S. Constitution, it's written, uh, much more explicitly in the USSR's Constitution of 1977, which is the Brezhnev's one, which is the third one. But here we go. <clears throat> Quote. Preamble of the Constitution and Fundamental Law of the Union of Soviet Socialistic Republics as adopted in the 7th, in brackets, special session of the Supreme Council of USSR, 9th Convocation of 7th of October, 1977. The Great October Socialist Revolution, made by the workers and peasants of Russia under the leadership of the Communist Party, headed by Lenin, overthrew capitalist and landowner rule, broke the fetters of oppression, established the dictatorship of the proletariat, and created the Council... Soviet, that is. Council and Soviet are the same things, really. Council state. A new type of state. The basic instrument for defending the gains of the revolution for building socialism and communism. Humanity thereby began the epoch-making turn from capitalism to socialism. 
After achieving victory in the civil war and repulsing imperialist intervention, the Soviet government carried through far-reaching social and economic transformations and put an end once and for all to all exploitation of a man by another man, antagonisms between various classes and strife between nationalities. The unification of the Soviet republics and the union of Soviet socialist republics multiplied the forces and opportunities of the peoples of the country in the building of socialism. Social ownership of the means of production and genuine democracy for the working masses was established. For the first time in the history of mankind, a socialist society was created. The strength of socialism was vividly demonstrated by the immortal feat of the Soviet people and their armed forces in achieving their historic victory in the Great Patriotic War. This victory consolidated the influence and international standing of the Soviet Union and created new opportunities for growth and the force of the forces of socialism, national liberation, democracy and peace throughout the world. Continuing their creative endeavors, the working people of the Soviet Union have ensured rapid all-round development of the country and steady improvement of the socialist system. They have consolidated the alliance of the working class, collective farm, kolkhoz, peasantry, and people's intelligentsia and friendship of the nations and nationalities of the USSR. Socio-political and ideological unity of Soviet society in which the working class is the leading force has been achieved. The aims of the dictatorship of proletariat having been fulfilled, the Soviet state has become a state of the whole people. The leading role of the Communist Party, the vanguard of all the people, has grown. In the USSR, a developed socialist society has been built. At this stage, when socialism is developing on its own foundations, the creative forces of the new system and the advantages of the socialist way of life are becoming increasingly evident, and the working people are more and more widely enjoying the fruits of their great revolutionary gains. It is a society in which powerful productive forces and progressive science and culture have been created, in which the well-being of the people is constantly rising, and more and more favorable conditions are being provided for the all-round development of the individual. It is a society of mature socialist social relations, in which, on the basis of the drawing together of all classes and social strata and of the jurisdictional and factual equality of all of its nations and nationalities and their fraternal cooperation, a new hysterical community of people has been formed, the Soviet people. It is a society of high organizational capacity, ideological commitment and consciousness of the working people, who are patriots and internationalists. It is a society in which the law of life is concern of all, for the good of each, and concern of each for the good of all. It is a society of true democracy, the political system which ensures effective management of all public affairs, ever more active participation of the working people in running the state and the combining of citizens' real rights and freedoms with their obligations and responsibility to society. Developed socialist society is a natural logical stage on the road to communism. The supreme goal of this Soviet state is the building of a classless communist society in which there will be a public communist self-government. The main aims of the people's socialist state are, quote, to lay the material and technical foundation of communism to perfect socialist social relations. Yes, socialist social relations, totally awesome. And transform them into communist relations. To mold the citizen of communist society to raise the people's living and cultural standards, to safeguard the country's security and to further the consolidation of peace and development of international cooperation. The Soviet people, and this is like in separate five points, guided by the ideas of scientific communism and true to the revolutionary traditions, relying on the great social, economic and political gains of socialism, striving for the further development of socialist democracy, Taking into account the international position of the USSR as part of the world system of socialism and conscious of their international responsibility, and preserving continuity of the ideas and principles of the first Soviet constitution of 1918, the 1924 constitution of the USSR, and the 1936 constitution of USSR, hereby affirm the principle of the social structure and policy of the USSR and define the rights, freedoms and obligations of citizens and the principles of the organization of the socialist state of the whole people and its aims and proclaim these in this constitution. I had to go up with all the sentiment because, well, if the United States Constitution's preamble is basically 
two sentences which state, yeah, we kind of live here together, we want to kind of live okay together. Then the USSR Constitution's preamble is like, and then we did this, and now we are gonna do this according to our ideals, and it's gonna be awesome, comrades! I tell you, awesome! And we're totally gonna abide by all of this, like, on paper, I don't know. I mean, modern-day United States socialists must have read this and thought this was like reality or something, because... It looks like interesting. It speaks about revolutionary gains and, and it even mentions winning World War Two and everything. It's crazy. But that's the main difference. People in the United States just wanted to come together to live well, okay, I suppose. Well, and with the blessings of liberty, whatever that is. But that's the least of the problems when, uh, well, you know, blessings of liberty is an easier political term to explain if you compare it to uh, an awesome term called gains of the revolution. But now let's look at another Western country, France, which is another kind of a passionate example, which will explain to you how, well, states operate differently. Their preamble is two paragraphs, but quite short ones. This is the Fourth Republic, though. Quote, <clears throat> France will kind of show a contrast of all these things. The French people solemnly proclaim their attachment to the rights of man and the principles of national sovereignty as defined by the Declaration of 1789, confirmed and complemented by the preamble to the Constitution of 1946, and to the rights and duties as defined in the Charter for the Environment of 2004. By virtue of these principles and that of the self-determination of peoples, the Republic offers to the overseas territories, which have been expressed the will to adhere to them, new institutions founded the common ideal of liberty liberty, equality, and fraternity, and conceived for the purpose of their democratic development. Basically, United States came together and were like, hey, uh, we kind of want to live like this. And the USSR came together and were like, ah, uh, then there was this long list of things and we better have a new constitution and let's just write everything down. The French are like, well, uh, you were a part of our overseas empire, well, hey, here's a deal for you different attitudes already, and then there's the Lafian one, which is ashamedly for myself, and this preamble, by the way, this can't be changed in Lafian, according to Lafian law, but this is pretty terrible. This is long and awful, and sadly, you have now the French and the United States for the Western style of preambles, then you heard the awful, awful Soviet preamble, and now check this out, 2014, 19th of June, Latvian constitutional preamble. Time for a bit longer one. Quote, <clears throat> The state of Latvia, proclaimed on the 18th of November 1918, has been established by uniting historical Latvian lands and on the basis of the unwavering will of the Latvian nation to have its own state and its inalienable right of self-determination in order to guarantee the existence and development of the Latvian nation, its language and culture throughout the centuries to ensure freedom and promote welfare of the people of Latvia and each individual. The people of Latvia won their state in the War of Liberation. They consolidated the system of government and adopted the constitution in the freely elected constitutional assembly. The people of Latvia did not recognize the occupation regimes, resisted them, and regained their freedom by restoring national independence on the 4th of May 1990 on the basis of the continuity of the state. They honor their freedom fighters, commemorate victims of foreign powers, condemn the communist and Nazi totalitarian regimes and their crimes. Latvia, as a democratic, socially responsible, and national state, is based on the rule of law and a respect for human dignity and freedom. It recognizes and protects fundamental human rights and respects ethnic minorities. The people of Latvia protect their sovereignty, national independence, territory, territorial integrity, and democratic system of government in the state of Latvia. Since ancient times, the identity of Latvia and the European cultural space has been shaped by Latvian and Olive traditions, Latvian folk wisdom, the Latvian language, universal human and Christian values. Uh, even though we still use tribes and tribal spaces in our country to determine administrative divisions, and even though our main festivities of the year are pagan ones, and uh, this is hard because we were there before the crusaders came this is kind of like this is kind of like if if well say iroquois were their own nation and they would proclaim that they were based on christian values we uh they're here and we're mostly christian but um there's a lot of controversy here but what they ascribe to christian values continuing on <clears throat> loyalty to latvia the latvian language is the only official language Freedom, equality, solidarity, justice, honesty, work ethic, and family are the foundations of a cohesive society. 
Each individual takes care of oneself, one's relatives, and the common good of society by acting responsibly toward other people, future generations, the environment, and the nature. While acknowledging its equal status in the international community, Latvia protects its national interests and promotes sustainable and democratic development of a united Europe and the world. God bless Latvia. As you can see, we have sadly gone the route of the Soviet era thing, and this is, I ensure you, the same with every Eastern Bloc constitution ever. We like our long preambles. We like to spell out everything. As you can imagine, if your basic document differs, then the rest of the mentality would follow. What's going to happen next is that I'm going to look through kind of what I consider the most important points, because, well, after the preamble, which is the definition of your country in this constitution, next part is where I'm going to be looking at what are the most important things included then in the constitution, because obviously the most important things should uh, happen in the first parts of the constitution, which define the way your government is being run and how it's operated, and then kind of the less important things in the matter of importance. And there, well, I hope that the savvy listener of mine shall also note some key differences between, well, USSR, Latvia, France, and the United States. Because, like I said, this is a purely speculative, interesting episode. But it's important to understand what the USSR thought of itself, and the only way how to explain it is through doing this constitutional comparison. And here I want to start with the Constitution of the United States, because, well, the United States Constitution goes through its Article 1, which is the legislative one, about how uh, all legislative powers heading granted shall be vested in the Congress of the United States, which shall consist of a Senate and the House of Representatives, which basically go through how every state gets its own powers, how everything gets like, split up and everything. It's purely economical things, actually. Like, how bills would be made, how everything will happen. What's interesting is that how the Senate and the Congress shall be uh, set up, basically, is the most important part here. Until you get to the Article 1, Section 8, where um, the powers of Congress are defined, and then there's Section uh, 9, where they also kind of limit the powers of the Senate and, and powers of the states and everything, the United States Constitution basically starts itself off by defining how the people of the United States should govern themselves. It makes no distinction about who the people of the United States are, who uh, these people should be, and it's just presume that it's just, you know, like in the preamble, that's a bunch of people who came together and wanted to live in a certain way. This, however is not the case of different constitutions, which people should kind of realize at this point, because, and I'll give you another Western one, well, Western by my standards, uh, is the one of France. And their Article 1, in its entirety, which is much, much shorter than all the sections and subsections of the United States Article 1, is just... <clears throat> France shall be an indivisible, secular, democratic, and social republic. It shall ensure the equality of all citizens before the law without distinction of origin, race, or religion. It shall respect all beliefs. It shall be organized on the decentralized basis. Statutes shall promote equal access by women and men to elective offices and posts as well as to position of professional and social responsibility. See, in the United States, the Article 1 defines what the United States are, in this case, well, at the time of writing, the Constitution anyways, by the system of upon which the United States would be governed. And they write down all the nice little rules and all the systems that'll be involved in the governing of the United States of America, right? Meanwhile, for example, France just states that, oh, it shall be an indivisible, secular, democratic, and social republic. Done. There's a difference. While French constitution emphasizes the idea of what a state should be and how it should be run, the American government at the time, approximately, and uh, the American constitution emphasizes the systems. So the French define themselves, obviously, by their idea of what a state should be, while Americans run it like, well, as you would expect, like a business thingy. Americans define themselves by the way they are run, 
while the French define themselves by who they are. French define themselves by the idea of France, while Americans define themselves, at least according to the Constitution, as read as is by me, who is not an American at this point, by how they are operated. Because apparently, well, there are two options here. Either the United States implicitly take onto themselves to define themselves, or they truly are, instead of defining by who they are, are defined by, well, how they uh, used to operate. Because, well, what are the people who should be operated are different. And then we come to USSR, this nice constitution of 77. USSR runs a bit of a middle ground here, but again, the differences are subtle, yet I really hope that you catch on to them and understand how I would risk to say the mentalities of the state work out. Because if in French case we saw the definition as being purely like you splatter an idea and then you build the constitution around it, in the United States case you start with the system and then you build the idea around the system, the USSR does it a bit differently. They have the chapter one, the political system, which has nine articles, which I'm going to read in full, because, well, each of these articles is basically one sentence, or two are the best, so. Chapter one, the political system, article one. The Union of Soviet Socialist Republics is a socialist state of the whole people expressing the will and the interests of the workers, peasants and intelligentsia, the working people of all the nations and nationalities in the country. So, the USSR constitution begins by the definition of their economical system. The economical process, not an idea, not the system of how everything is being run, they begin by declaring those in themselves a socialist state, which is interesting because the French also declare themselves to be, as a reminder, a social republic. French declare themselves to be a social republic. USSR declares itself a socialist state. The legalese of this is minute, but there's a subtle difference. I mean, well, it's basically comparing, like, I don't know, Bernie Sanders to Joseph Stalin. There is a, well, obvious difference between the two people here. It's interesting because... First of all, France and their constitution put themselves to be an indivisible, secular, democratic, and social republic. Meanwhile, USSR states that it is a social state, then the other parts. And then they become to define everything because... In Article 2, they state that all power in the USSR belongs to the people. The people exercise state power through councils of people's deputies, which constitute the political foundation of the USSR. All other state bodies are under the control of, and accountable to, the councils of people's deputies. Article 3. The Soviet state is organized and functions of the principle of democratic centralism, namely the electiveness of all bodies of state authority from the lowest to the highest, their accountability to the people, and the obligation of lower bodies to observe the decisions of the higher ones. Democratic centralism combines central leadership with local initiative and creative activity, and with the responsibility to of the each state body and official for the work entrusted to them. And then they kind of go through a bit of a system, but a bit of an idea, kind of in between, between the French and the Soviet ones, but there's an interesting article, Article 6. <clears throat> the leading and guiding force of the Soviet society and the nucleus of its political system, of all state organizations and public organizations, is the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. The CPSU exists for the people and serves the people. At dinner, I presume. The Communist Party, armed with Marxism-Leninism, determines the general perspectives of the development of society and the course of the home and foreign policy of the USSR, directs the great constructive work of the Soviet people and imparts a planned, systematic and theoretically substantiated character to their struggle for the victory of communism. All party organizations shall function in the framework of the constitution of the USSR. So... The Communist Party wrote in the Constitution itself that it shall be the only party and that it shall work within the Constitution that it itself wrote. It's a nice little piece of circular logic. The nice little crazy thought that, A, we're going to work within the Constitution, but only if we write it ourselves. Awesome. Meanwhile, well, back in our current Latvian Constitution, our Chapter 1... We don't have articles, we have chapters here too. Again, somewhat Soviet, somewhat bought out from the Western systems, weird as it is. Number chapter one is called General Provisions. And these are really short, they're like four of them. Uh, because, you know, we get to General Provisions, and then chapter two as well, but 
you would get as Article 1 of the United States uh, Constitution with all the systematical things, all the system stuff, which is pretty long, explaining how our parliamentary republic works through the SAIM, or parliament, which is just chamberal one, and we're also not a federation, so it's kind of simpler, and what powers our president has, because he's it's kind of like a vice president, but more prime minister. It's a weird thing. It's a weird thing, but it's more complicated than that. Anyway, our general provisions of the chapter one of our constitution is that, number one, Latvia is an independent democratic republic. Number two, the sovereign power of the state of Latvia is vested in the people of Latvia. Number three, the territory of the state of Latvia within the borders established international agreements consists of Vizeme, Latgala, Kurzeme, and Zemgala, which are, well, you know, our old tribes used to live. Four tribes for Latvia, five for Lithuania, and there you go, there's the Baltic people. Estonians are Finno-Ugric, they're, they're a bit different. They're politically connected to us, but not ethnically, but that doesn't matter that much. And then number four, the Latvian language, the official language of the Republic of Latvia. The national flag of Latvia shall be red with a banner white. Again, Latvia defines itself by the people who live there and by our symbols. Soviet Union defined itself by its economical statutes, by what economy it run. It defined itself as a socialist republic, while Latvia defines it by country for Latvians with these symbols and our language. USSR this is our socialist state. United States of America, well, these are the rules. United States defines itself by the system it's being governed. Meanwhile, France defines itself as being indivisible, secular, democratic, and social. There are nuances, but I hope that at this point you understand that, well, being French is something very different from being Latvian or Soviet or American, and vice versa. Anyway, well, it seems that I'm going to have to record another part of this uh, this week because we run over our time limit for a bit. So, uh, let this be part one of the Constitution. We're going to finish this in part two, which is going to happen in a few days. I just that, well, I've been recording for a couple of hours today, getting kind of hard. And, well, enjoy this episode. Well, treat it as your Constitutional 101, and after that... I hope this shall serve you well in thinking about what a country is, how it works, and we'll get back to these nice little four constitutions next week. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you don't mind that uh, I took this nice little meandering here to ruffle up the bits slightly and take some time to explain the political inner workings, because I hope that you do understand how the USSR viewed itself a bit more. До свидания, товарищи. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 